0: Hi, I'm John Popola, and you're listening to the Emergent Order Podcast. Okay, so this is an experiment for me and for us at Emergent Order. 10 years ago, we started our work with YouTube in the sense that, uh, you know, me and my business partner, Josh, and my other business partner, Lisa, my best friend and my wife, um, released uh, "Fear the Boom and Bust," which is the first video on this channel, and um, and so in a sense, YouTube's always been my favorite platform. It's always been the place I turn to uh, when I've got nothing else to do, frankly. And so, it, it you know, in this time where we're all stuck at home, and I'm a high production value kind of guy, so I'm always looking for ways to create content that's interesting. Uh, I thought, you know. We've underutilized talking to all the folks who've subscribed to the YouTube channel, and I thought now's as good a time as any to re-engage with people and, and, uh, and just sort of lift the kimono on some of the ways that we do what we do at Emergent Order and, uh, and, you know, start being a, a little more experimental. And so that's what this is all about. So if uh, if my A73 craps out, <laughs> that's uh that's just part of the process. I think I've got it all rigged pretty well. Um, you know, I usually work with bigger crews than just me, but this is uh this is fun for me too. Uh on a totally side note, you know, uh when we first did uh, fear the boom and bust, um you know, I've always been a gearhead, so we shot it with the Canon 7D, which was this new camera at the time. And, uh, and so I, this is probably the most fun part of this kind of thing for me, is getting to experiment with the technology and uh, make use of autofocus that actually works. And so that's all really fun. Um, you know, for those of you who are, that are starting to log in, you know, I'm gonna try to make this as interactive as possible. And uh, so I'll be paying attention to the comments. And, um, and for those of you that watch this after the fact, I hope, uh, I hope you get value out of it. Um, As I said, you know, 10 years ago, we released Fear the Boom and Bust on January. I think it was the January 28th, 2010. So it's been a decade of trying to tell big idea stories through video. Um, Me and Josh and Lisa, you know, our backgrounds were in television. We, uh, I met my wife, you know, Lisa at Nickelodeon where we were doing, uh, promos for the network and and Josh and I have been making videos together since fifth grade, but we went to film school together and we worked together at Nickelodeon and then we worked together again at Spike. So, um, that was our background and, you know, our company and this YouTube channel was born in crisis because, uh, You know, we were at a a turning point in our own lives at that point uh, in 2009 and and 2008 and nine. You know, we were old enough that we were starting, we were getting married and having kids and and um, having mortgages, paying interest rates on those mortgages. And so, when the financial crisis happened, um, uh, it was a captivating and terrifying experience for us. You know, we were working in New York City. Uh, we were in New York for nine 11 and we were in New York for, uh, the, the Northeastern blackout. So we sort of had these, uh, crisis experiences in New York city for over a decade together. And, um, and I think those things combined to create a feeling that, you know, maybe there's more we can do than just promote SpongeBob or the guy's choice awards. And Josh and I had, uh, had started spending our, our, our lunch breaks talking about what is happening with this financial crisis and, and what is happening in our own lives. How do we, where, where do we want to go next? You know, life in New York is actually pretty, pretty challenging. It's an expensive place to live. Um, and even when you're doing pretty well by most standards, you are not always living that great. You're living great when you're young because you can get out there and um, make use of all the city has to offer. But once you have kids, it sort of changes the game for for your relationship with New York City. And for me, that had happened. It hadn't happened for Josh yet, but he was talking about it. And and, and so that was part of the first life transformation that when you look at the backdrop of the financial crisis sort of was this like awakening moment a decade ago. And um, I think we're going through another Moment like that now, right? Um, we've got layers of crisis. We've got this pandemic, which has hit all of us really hard. It's certainly hit our our uh, our little family business hard, but we're we're still standing um, for now. But um, it's hit a lot of people way harder than us. And my heart really goes out to to people who are really in a difficult spot because of what's happened with uh, the coronavirus and and the lockdowns and everything that's happened. And, you know, I've been pretty vocal on Facebook about what I think was an overreaction in some respects, but I, I, you know, I also have to come at this with a lot of humility. And and one of the reasons why I wanted to start doing this on YouTube was that um, I've noticed something about myself as a creative person and as a communicator. And that is that social media is pretty, can, can kind of bring out the worst in you. And I've been thinking about like, why is that? Why, why do Facebook posts and tweets tend to make you not your best self, maybe even your worst self. And, um, and, you know, what can we do about that? And what should we do about it? Because these platforms are super engaging and they're, they've broken down all the barriers to our ability to, to, create content and to tell stories and to engage with audiences and to, you know, build livelihoods for ourselves in totally new ways that were only ever possible in a handful of um, opportunities before. And now they're open to everybody. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things is, and it's, it's something that the coronavirus crisis has brought into really stark contrast, how much human contact sort of regulates our behavior. And how much um, looking somebody in the eye, uh, and 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 physically in their presence, not this, not me looking at a lens, making it try to feel like I'm looking at you, the viewer, but actually looking you as a person in the eye across from me. You know, there's like biological things that happen. There's a uh, there's a there's a neurochemical called oxytocin. Um, it's called the trust hormone or the bonding hormone that kicks in when you look people in the eye, when you have a conversation, it builds, it's, it's part of the, the underlying me- mechanisms of building trust and building relationships. You know, when, when, when a baby is born and, and is, um, you know, the, the, the mother makes eye contact oxytocin just floods the, the head and it creates that, it's part of what we understand or we think we understand about what creates that bond. Um, that doesn't happen on digital platforms, it doesn't happen in a Zoom or a FaceTime video. Even when you're looking kind of somebody sort of in the eye, and it, you almost feel like it's present. Um, it definitely doesn't happen on Twitter, and it doesn't happen on Facebook. And so, um, and so we we sort of give away some of our human tools, you know, these biological, sociological, social tools, when we. Um, or I guess psychological tools when we uh, when we engage on these platforms, you know, when you see a news uh, something in your news feed and bloviate, and I'm talking about me here, bloviate about like here's why I think they've we've gone over the over the top on the lockdowns, or why we should be more like Sweden or less like Sweden, or you know whether it's more like Sweden on some respects and we're all obsessed with Sweden one way or another so I don't know why but uh Sweden's at the top of everybody's mind for everything all the time we want to be more like Sweden economically or less we want to be more like Sweden on pa- pandemic response or less um lovely country uh, I don't think it's got as many lessons for a diverse 330 million person society like America as we as any of us want it to but um when you do that, when I do it and I'm on Facebook and I write, and in some respects it's probably some of my better copywriting because it's pithy and punchy and I'm bra, I'm angry and I'm set and I'm trying to get a response, and then you get you see all those comments flood in, there's no oxytocin going on there, but there is dopamine there is these little hits you know probably we've all heard it, these little sort of pops of of joy um, of pleasure when you see people responding and liking and sharing and engaging and um, and I think we're grappling with that as a society how to deal with these these dopamine hits these digital dopamine hits and um, and and uh, and I don't think we're even at the start of fully grasping the implications of uh, of these platforms I think you know one of the other things that's become, you know, really, a focus of mine is our relationship to fear, which is another thing that's happening right now that's um, uh, really intense. And that you know, fear is this um, this potent emotion, this potent physiological response to stimulus, to um, events, to, to information. And um, I'm going to talk more about that later, but I. I think that we have never been subjected to as much fear as we have in the past 10 years for sure, but it's continues to escalate. And I think that we have a certain algorithmic optimization of our response to fear going on, but uh, which has made a lot of things in our society, I think, worse. And so, uh, you know, a year ago, I started doing a podcast, the Emergent Order podcast, and the, uh, the audio from this stream is going to be included in that. And, um, uh, and, and And the reason why I did that was to start to break away and focus my energies on, um, on something where I could have that human interaction and that human contact rather than this sort of um, sniping back and forth. On 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 Facebook, I see a, a kind of a, a silly comment about Apple being racist. Uh, you know, yes, I've got the Apple logo. For any any of you that have known me for a long time, know that I am I am probably more obsessively fanboyish about Apple than I am about um, uh, economics. <laughs> and um, one of the reasons why I started to get into economics, actually. Was because um, I, I always loved the debate. I've, I've loved the debate since I was a kid, and uh, and my wife Lisa noticed that I was spending an unhealthy amount of time after hours engaging in debates about Mac versus PC, uh, which which is something that dates all the way back to high school for me. Before there was before the World Wide Web was fully a thing, you know, like AOL chat group, chat room, CompuServe type stuff. You know, just to date me. I'm 42. So, I was around, my childhood didn't involve the internet. Um, You know, me and Josh would play video games that weren't connected to each other. So, we had to be in the same room to play together. Um, And actually, the funny thing was, in in a sense, it was my first experience of sort of the zealotry of a convert because uh, Josh and I built PCs together. I was a hardcore PC all the way straight through college. cyclone eighty nine seventy four pc 100 well i I'm, i'm with you at one level because we used to build gaming pcs when we josh and i went to penn state together and the um the first um thing we did when we got to our dorm you know this is 1995. this is like september 1995 um long time ago um and 25 years ago, and we, uh, we, we we had to find an ethernet cable to w- what was called a patch cable. I don't know if you even still use that term, but it's an ethernet cable with a twist in it so that you can connect two computers and they'll talk to each other so that we could play, maybe it was Doom or Castle Wolfenstein or something connected with a high-speed connection. I mean, this was the most exciting first thing about going to college was having fast internet. I mean, this was the era where a 56K kilobaud modem, there we go. Yeah, crossover cable, um, where that was fast. Uh, And so, you know, all through college, we built PCs. You know, the other hobby I had all all throughout that, because we were making videos since grade school, Maybe we'll even post some of those old grade school ones on the on the YouTube channel as, as embarrassing as they are because we were doing sort of political commentary in high school, really schlocky, terrible political commentary in high school. Um, uh, but, you know, that was it. That I was a passionate PC guy. I actually started off in computer science at Penn State, not in film or entertainment or communications. So I've always had this left and right brain thing going on. I started off in computer science, was a PC guy, Um, you know, Josh was all in going to film right from the beginning. I switched majors to film and then we were in film school together and, uh, made a bunch of like silly little college movies. What's amazing these days is when you look on YouTube, there are, there are like middle school kids whose YouTube videos are better than our senior thesis film. I mean, the explosion of incredible creativity that's happened. And that can be done entirely with your mobile phone. Is so sort of crazy for those of us that have kind of lived through, you know, 25 years, 30 years of technological change that's happened on this front. But um, when I got out of school, I, uh, you know, I got a job at MTV in the series development department. It was the guys that did Beavis and Butthead, the animation team. And I was making. Um, I was making $500 a week working in New York City, commuting from New Rochelle. Uh, so I was not really able to get by. So I, went, I spent that first two years uh, out of my career basically accumulating credit card debt until the dot-com bust. And um, during that two-year period where I was, I was set in front of an, of an iMac, <laughs> and this was not like modern Unix OS X like Mac OS as it is today, that's like pretty bulletproof and stable and great. And, you know, you go into an airport and half the computers you see are Apple. This is like, this is 1999. Um, Apple is on the verge of death. They've released the iMac, Steve Jobs is back, but they're like an also ran. And I am a PC guy. And what made me into a Mac fanatic was how productive I was on these Apple computers. You know, I just, there was no worrying about the tech and I knew the tech I could build. I could probably still, I might struggle a little to build a windows PC today, but thanks to YouTube, I could watch a video and get caught up, um, on, you know, the the process for updating the bios or whatever might still work. I don't know what the latest tech is on that front. Um, but, uh, I got a chance to, um, do a freelance, a sort of side project while I was working as a PA (laughs) MC MC video cast. It is still the same. Well, that's unfortunate. My son is using an an old Mac pro as a a gaming PC. And so in a way, Macs make great PCs because the bootcamp drivers just kind of do it all. So it doesn't give you the full PC experience um, for better and worse, but, um, I've told him, I said, look, just for fun, I will build a gaming PC with you if you do all the research and and pick the parts and I'll give you a budget and then you have to I'll just sort of be floating behind to watch you do it. But um I um I had this opportunity to work on a show that some of you might remember called Little Bill. And Little Bill it's now it's funny now because it's um it was it was little Bill Cosby, so A lot has happened in the past 20 years, but it was a kid's program about Little Bill Cosby in Philadelphia. I'm a Philadelphian. Um, And it was animated sort of like the way South Park is. It was one of the early sort of puppet animation, digital puppeteering um, animated shows. Blue Clues did this, Little Bill did it. Um, South Park took it to another level in terms of the fast turnaround that they were able to achieve. But I, I, I had this opportunity to work essentially nights and weekends doing after effects. And there was a test that they gave prospects for this freelance opportunity. It was an after effects file where you would, um, you know, have to animate little bill, like walking along in a scene. And um, there was this, there was a technique for called mouth replacement, which I'm weirdly still good at doing where, you know, you nest, If you've never seen Adobe After Effects, it's it's sort of like Photoshop in the sense that there's layers of graphic elements. And then the way you can animate characters, and I think this has gotten a lot better since I used to be good at After Effects because I'm no longer good at it or I'm no longer up to date is you sort of take all these layers, the head, the the body, the uh, upper arm, lower arm, wrist, and then you sort of associate them with each other, and it become this like puppet where you'd move the arm, and then you could move this part of the arm, and you, and you could also like replace parts. So if are getting the lips to sync, you'd have a bunch of different mouths, and you'd turn them on and off, and it would, they, they, I think the term is phenoms, the, the little like ah, ooh, Mm, mm, like you, you know, five or six of these and you could make a lip sync happen. And so that was the other part of the test. Well, this is a total diatribe off to the, down the rabbit hole I've gone already. But um, I brought this fi- this test home. Um, they were Macintosh files and they wouldn't open. They wouldn't open partly because they didn't have file extensions because the old Mac OS didn't use the .jpg um, or didn't need to use them. It had sort of an invisible data for what this type of file you had. And the Windows PCs didn't know what to do with these files. And, on, and so that's, that was problem number one. But problem number two is when I went to actually try to like fix the files, get the, get the After Effects project to open, my Windows PC crashed and I spent the weekend not trying to animate Little Bill, but reinstalling Windows and um and so i didn't get this opportunity an opportunity that actually would have uh made it so that i wasn't going into deeper and deeper debt every week and cuz you got to remember 500 a week is um is not a lot of money 500 a week is $26,000 a year that's um that's in new york city and after tax it was something like 320 grand a week $320 a week um, so that was pretty tight. <laughs> like the idea of like $15 minimum wage when I think about where I started at at the bottom of the barrel at MTV is uh is um lesson number one of live streaming. Turn off your phone. Um uh, that was, I mean, that this was like a super <laughs> important moment for me. So th- even though I didn't have any money, I found a way. To, I, I like, I basically bought a, a G4 uh, Mac on credit card and switched at home and like said goodbye to the PC and never looked back. And I've been a, like an Apple um, acolyte ever since. So all of Emergent Order runs on Apple tech. Um, it, it is pretty bulletproof, and there are things about it when it comes to just basic workflows that I just would defend to the end. And I know Apple's had ups and downs and they're not a perfect company. And um, th- th- I love this shirt, first of all, because it fits me, but, um, but uh, uh, also like Josh actually got this. Cause he went and gave a talk about our, our movie, the pursuit that he edited in final cut pro 10 at the Apple campus. And so he got this at the Apple campus and um, you know, one of the highlights of our time at Nickelodeon actually was uh, we got to be given a quote executive briefing, which was over, um, maybe overstating our role at Nickelodeon at the time where me, Josh and our other college buddy, Jeremy, who was working with us and another producer, uh, director Quasi got to go to the Apple campus and we met Bud Tribble and the guys behind final cut and quick time. And I actually got to see Steve jobs and, um, and Jonathan Ive walk through the one infinite loop hallway. Uh, like you come into the original Apple campus, and there's like this big vestibule with this high arched ceiling, and they came out of this uh, elevator off to the side. And we're sort of huddled with like the quick time nerds talking about I don't know what. So Jobs and and uh, and I've come out of the elevator and um and and I make brief eye contact with Steve Jobs and <laughs> Uh, and my response is as is a window into my goofy nature, because here's what I did. <laughs> I literally I literally waved at him like like a goofball and the engineers and everyone around us were like, what is he doing? Why is he doing this? Uh, I didn't care. I didn't work for Apple. I, you know, I know I know he had a wrath that he could uh, rain down upon you, which is not a quality I think is um, either necessary or valuable in business. I don't think you need to be a tyrant or a terror to get good work out of people i don't i think that's a bad way to go but um i think it's one of the worst things about the aftermath of steve jobs un- unbelievable success is that some people actually thought that his 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 weaknesses were a strength um and uh you know but nonetheless that's sort of the, that's the apple that's my passion for apple i have like this passion engine and its first target was mac versus pc First for first for PC, then for Mac, and so I have the I know what it means to have the zealotry of a convert. So um, zooming all the way back, my you know my wife Lisa um, sees me spending all this time, and she says, "Look, you've got to find a more productive, something that advances your interests more than like being essentially like free PR for Apple. I mean, I know you love Apple, I know it's fun, but there's got to be something else you can do with yourself." So I started, um, I started listening initially to history books, actually, because I had this massive commute and I listened to the Ben Franklin, uh, a Ben Franklin biography um, and realized, wow, like I didn't like history in school, but history is actually pretty amazing. You know, textbooks are not fun or interesting. They're dry and horrible and you have to you know, memorized dates and, and, um, every like everything about school to me has kind of been turned into put in a blunder in my mind over the years. But I came to really get excited about first about American history and about the founding. And I read the David McCullough, Adam, uh, John Adams book, which became the HBO series with, um, uh, oh, the actor's name is escaping me, Italian actor. He's in billions now. But, um, so, th- so I'm I'm putting my brain to use, and the financial crisis starts to happen, and so I um, I turn that energy into economics. Um, I was I I had started to become interested in Ron Paul, and so my cousin Bill, who's my Facebook sparring partner, um, said, "You know, all the stuff you're reading and what you're saying, you kind of sound like a libertarian." And I was like, oh, that's interesting. He's like, well, do you like Ron Paul? And I was like, I don't know who Ron Paul is. This, this, he's 13 years old at this point. He's no, he knew more about politics than I did when I was in my 20s and, or 30s. And, um, and he was like 13, 14 years old. So, um, you know, I Google Ron Paul, which was actually like a bit of an early meme in the 2006, 2007 time period, Google Ron Paul. And, and like, it was through that, that I found out about Friedrich Hayek and Hayek had this story and of, about what happens that causes these booms and busts. And that story sounded a whole lot like what we were going through. And that was that, you know, essentially um, excessively easy money. So the fed sort of printing more money than it should uh, causes um, this distortion in the economy, at, at, like across the entire economy, uh, where you get you get a kind of boom of investment in projects that aren't actually sustainable. They don't mesh with the real needs of where people are in terms of their desires to save and invest and in their incomes and their plans. You get this sort of distortion, like a ripple. Um, and that interest rates are one of the ways that that process, gets rippled out. So if if you're in 2005 and interest rates have, um, have come way, way down because of um, easy money in part from the Federal Reserve, well, what happens when interest rates are low? Well, it's cheaper to mortgage homes. It's cheaper to borrow money on expensive projects. And so you get this boom. And then the question is, well, why does why can't the boom just go on forever? Why can't you just keep printing money and let the boom keep going? And the reason was that, as um, uh, as I think either Mises or maybe Roger Garrison says that you know, or maybe it was Murray Rothbard. These were all people I was just starting to read. Uh, you know, as that money makes its way out into the economy, and people start to you know invest in these things that are more interest rate sensitive, like housing and heavy industry and manufacturing, you start to run up against reality. And so you get inflation. So that spending um, translates into inflation, which is what we saw in 2005 and six. You, you saw housing prices going up because of all the demand. You saw d- like the, the, the prices of the raw materials that go into building a house Going up like crazy there was a they were importing concrete from China to, to build houses in two thousand five and six. Um, copper was being ripped out of job sites because of how high pro- copper prices had gone and then in two thousand and eight, one of the things that uh really confused policymakers was um, even as the economy was turning south um, there were this the gas prices topped 4 dollars a gallon in summer of 2008 and uh and food prices were causing like global riots like rice and basic commodities were going crazy and this is what happens as the money gets out there into the into the economy and it it, it doesn't just happen like pouring water in an ice tray it it happens because of that bidding process. Okay. I've gotten a loan now to build a house. I'm going to go out there and buy the materials to build the house. Oh, you also got a loan to build a house. Um, well, we're, Oh, the lumber yard is running low on lumber. They're going to increase their price. This, this is the actual like mechanical, the underlying process that gives rise to the rising prices. So, and as the prices rise, I mean, these are like lyrics out of fear the boom and bust, you know um, uh, you know, the grasping for resources reveals there's too few, so the boom turns to bust. Um, as a matter of fact, now it's devalued capital that makes up the slack. <laughs> I can't believe I still remember the lyrics. But um, this story of how this happened, why the boom, why the boom across the whole economy, why a boom in housing across multiple countries—what would coordinate it? You know this. What like I think Murray Rothbard called like the cluster of errors all in the same direction. And, and, and it was that, that unlikelihood that everyone all around the world will be wanting houses at the exact same time that led a lot of people to say, well, you'll, you ne-, there's never been a, you know, a, 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 housing boom, the way this is, this, you know, and you could find articles in 2007 saying, this is the greatest economy we've ever had in our, in the history of the world. Um, you know, 2007, january 2020 you name it we've got these stories um and so this crisis that happens uh, 10 years ago really 12 um was like an eye-opening thing for me it was like i went down this rabbit hole of trying to understand what was going on and it was affecting us personally because we had an apartment we had a child we, we, we had rising cost of living. We moved we moved further out to Jersey um, to try to deal with the fact that we could barely afford to keep up with our cost of living in our little apartment in Hoboken. Um, and so we make this video, the first video of this YouTube channel, Fear the Boom and Bust. I, and I reach out to Russ Roberts, this podcasting economist econ, from Econ Talk, and um And started collaboration in 2009 that, um, in the aftermath of the stimulus package being passed, and the general feeling that um, here you have this story about this Friedrich Hayek story about the causes of the boom and why it turns to bust and and how we should understand the way the market economy is supposed to work. And you have basically everyone agreeing with Keynes's longtime, uh, Friedrich Hayek's longtime rival, John Maynard Keynes. Um, And saying, look, the problem isn't any of that stuff. Interest rates don't matter. Um, Savings is actually bad for the economy because it it reduces spending. Spending is all that matters in the economy. So we just have to keep spending going. And if, if individuals won't spend, then the government should sort of spend on our behalf. And there's actually like some kernels of truth in, in that in a very particular technical way that I won't go into now. But, um, but by and large, it's kind of in my personal opinion and in the it, kind of nonsense. You know, consuming um, uses stuff up. That's what we do when we consume. You, when, you, you, when you consume a sandwich, you use it up. The creation of wealth is the production of the sandwich. And yes, you do create, you produce a sandwich because you're hungry. But your hunger isn't the means to create the sandwich. It's the, old, it's the, it's the ends, not the means. And, and my view and, and what the motivation behind Fear the Boom and Bust was that this sort of Keynesian story, this story that government can spend for us and heal the economy, that the economy is kind of like this machine or this sort of big macro circular flow and that the underlying decisions at the individual level really don't necessarily matter. You can even dig ditches and fill them back in and that'll be good for the economy. Um, I, that just didn't make any sense to me. You know, digging ditches and filling them back in is a waste of time. You don't get richer digging ditches and filling them back in. You don't get richer making things that nobody wants. Um and so these were these big ideas that gave rise to Fear the Boom and Bust. And one of the things, again, sort of like what I'm trying to do with this live stream is um, one of the things about the, the angle we took in making Fear the Boom and Bust was, <sighs> yes, I think Keynes is mostly nonsense. I really do. I, don't, I think he's. I think the stuff in Keynes that's correct isn't original with Keynes. And the stuff that's original with Keynes isn't correct, but uh, it's so much more interesting. It's so much more respectful, um, and it's so much more difficult to take the opposing point of view seriously. You know, to say I'm going to represent John Maynard Keynes's view in a way that Keynes himself, or at least his modern proponents, would recognize as being true, as being uh, accurate. And um, if I can do that, then even though I disagree, and in this case, it's we, me and Russ, um, you know, in our collaboration together, even if we disagree with Keynes, it's important to understand them. And it's important as a piece of creative work to grapple with the ideas that are challenging to your view and take them seriously. And this is an ethos that has become sort of one of the founding principles of emergent order as a company. We try to take on these big ideas with our projects. And um, even if in personal conversation, it'll be like, well, socialism's a big crock and it's never worked anywhere. Um, We're going to spend hours and days and days reading Marx to try to understand the argument and interviewing Um, Marxian economists and Marx sympathetic uh, progressive economists to try to represent the worldview of Marx in our Mises versus Marx rap video. um, uh, Well, and, um, and I think that that's just more interesting. And I think that is the, what the competition of ideas looks like at its best. And I think when you're in a crisis moment, like we're in now, um, where there's so much heat and there's so much, um, so much anger, so much fear that it's, this is one of the things that we have to try to find a path back to is a path to um, understanding. It doesn't, understanding doesn't mean agreement. It doesn't even mean, um, I'm not sure if the tolerance is the right word or not, but I think that there's something that's been, been scorched in our discourse. And it's something that we've tried to preserve in our work. And I am guilty as charged that I have not preserved it on my Facebook page to near the extent that I should, you know, I'm like exhibit a for being a hypocrite about, about um, not strawmanning per se, but you know, pointing to politicians in particular, and basically being like, "Well, they're evil and they want to rip us off and they're corrupt, and uh, that's why they're doing this. They know what they're doing." And I think you know, sometimes even when that's true, even when the argument for that is pretty straightforward, even when you can spot hypocrisy, I, I, I don't. I've never really met anyone that um, was insulted into agreement um, or was backed into a corner on their ideas and changed their mind under that pressure. Um, I know a lot of people who would argue for things that they themselves don't even agree with when they're backed into that kind of corner. And, um, And so I think that that's one of the founding principles that we've tried to that we've tried to live by in our work you know uh, i'll give you an example um our first feature film uh, is called at the fork and it's about the way animals are raised for food and um, the way this project came about um was it was through personal passion and it wasn't my passion in fact it was kind of my pain in the neck because um, uh, when I first met Lisa at Nickelodeon, one of the first things she said to me was that she was a vegetarian. And this was one of the most important things for her was animal, um, animal rights. And she had, she had sort of implored me uh, to buy Apple stock, uh, not Apple stock. I'm sorry, to buy whole food stock. And because she was like, they're the best. They're advancing everything that I care about. They're the greatest company ever. And I, at the time, you know, I've actually gotten, I call myself a classical liberal. I sort of was raised as a pretty, pretty much like a conservative Catholic. And um, in, in some ways I'm super radical. You know, you could say fiscally conservative, socially liberal, whatever. But the point is like, I've actually changed quite a bit by my philosophy over the years. I was quite a bit more um, of a curmudgeon actually when I was younger than I am now. And so she's telling me about Whole Foods and the veggie burger and, and, and how she got the veggie burger at Burger King, which is true. Lisa uh, did get the veggie burger at Burger King before the impossible Whopper, the impossible Whopper is like version two and it's, it's actually pretty awesome. But, um, and I thought this is a bunch of BS. Like, (laughs) what are you talking about? Like we went to a, we went to a dinner with, uh, um, with an eclectic group of people. It was a really strange experience, but one of them was the founder of Garden Burger. This is going back like 25 years, 22 years, something like, or no, that can't be right. This is going back like 18 years. And, um, And there's this like pause in the conversation. And I say, you know what's interesting? If you didn't have hamburgers, would you ever think to turn vegetables into the shape and try to give it this particular flavor and like, Charles groil it to, to be this sort of smoky taste. Like in a way, don't you need the hamburger in order to have the veggie burger? Uh, <laughs> it was like one of these step into the quiet moment and step your foot into your mouth in the quiet moment. And um, the, the, the founder of Garden Burger didn't seem to appreciate me accidentally saying that he owed his fortune to hamburgers. But, uh, but that kind of gives you a sense of where I was coming from with all this stuff. So fast forward to us um, moving down to here. We, we live in Austin, Texas, and um, um, and we get a chance to meet John Mackey, the founder, co-founder of um, of Whole Foods Market. And before we even moved down here, you know, I had at least be, bec- become aware that John Mackey, despite being the co-founder of Whole Foods, wasn't like a Crunchy commune kind of guy. I mean, he he was actually, but um, but he was like a hardcore capitalist. He's a free marketeer, and he had actually written this article in um, Wall Street Journal about Whole Foods healthcare, where he basically advocated for a more consumer-driven free market-style healthcare approach, and that that's what he did at Whole Foods. That he did, you know, health savings accounts. That he empowered his employees to to make the spending decisions rather than having it be this sort of a la carte tragedy of the commons order, whatever tests you want. I don't know what they cost and you, the doctor don't know either. And then why is everything so expensive? Well, because there's no prices on it thing. Um, and for that, he got sort of uh, vilified because you know, a lot of folks that shop at whole foods, a lot of people that sort of, uh, um, are super enthusiastic about whole foods are not super free market oriented for better or worse. Um, so anyway, we we, we connect with uh, with John, and um, he's a we have a great interview with him on our on the Emerging Order podcast. So I definitely encourage you to check it out. But um, John and Lisa start talking about their shared enthusiasm for animal rights, and John's a, 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 a philosophical vegan, and um, Lisa's vegan-ish. We sometimes have dairy; she never gets eggs, and uh, and out of that this idea to do a movie is born and this movie at which becomes at the fork starts with the premise that this debate about animals is um polarized and mil and 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 sort of militarized so you have on um the right if you will paleo <laughs> or uh Or just like, America is about steak and beef and hamburgers. And if, you know, you're just a dirty hippie, if you think that this is anything other than great. And, you know, we have dominion over these animals. We raise them for this purpose. Like, shut up. And then on the other hand, you've got sort of a PETA. You know, meat is murder. And if you... Eat meat. If you raise animals for food, you're basically in in you know closer to Hitler on the spectrum of bad actors than not, and um, and that's not a totally. I don't think that's a misrepresentation. I mean, you know, and and Pete has actually I think done a lot of really interesting important work, but they are sort of the exemplar of the most um, bombastic voice for animal for animal activism. Uh, there's there's actually you know activist organizations that are even more hardcore than PETA. Um, I think you know so I don't mean to pick on PETA here in in any way actually, but um, but the, but you have these two sides, and even in the world of like movies about food, you have like forks over knives and, um, and, and, and 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 various things that say veganism is the is the way to go, and I think there's a pretty strong argument for that on a lot of fronts, including health. And then you've got the exact opposite. And so what we wanted to do much like we did in a sense with the rap videos was come to the, to the middle and say, okay, um, how do we explore the area in between here? And it didn't start off as a personal story. We didn't set out to have ourselves be in the movie. I have very mixed feelings about it, even though, um, I think it worked out. Okay. But, uh, you know lisa and i actually represented this in our own household the, the only times we were really get into arguments was over food and you know we're both italian but like when i go home my parents make sausage and they make uh, ribs and it's like it's embedded in like the joy of of coming home to eat these foods and um, and and so that tension was part of our exploration of this film. And so we met with farmers across the spectrum as well as animal activists and, um, and farm sanctuary folks and basically let them tell their story of what they do and why they do it. And when if you watch the movie, what you'll find is across the spectrum from um, you know, the farm sanctuaries in Northern California, in Marin County, which is the most beautiful place in the country, um, you can see why environmentalism is most strong in the, in the Pacific Northwest because it is just such beautiful country. Um, uh, all the way to like large-scale animal agriculture operations, we have what's called like KFOs or factory farms, which is a, a, it's a derisive term, but um, it's not wholly inappropriate. It, um, and we listen to all these folks and we let them tell their story and we show their practices with a very minimal amount of com- commentary. And the way the movie ends, um, not to spoil it, but it's really a meant to be experienced, it's not some big aha, is that no matter where you fall in the spectrum here, that you have to take that, you know, the call to action is really that you need to take the lives of these animals into consideration. That they, um, that, that we do have dominion over them and that um, they're living things. And one of the things about um, that approach, uh, I learned a couple different things about myself and about storytelling in these difficult times and with such with thorny issues that people are super viscerally uh, engaged on. and that is that um, you probably get a bigger audience when you go for the extremes. You know, we didn't we got on Amazon Prime and I've heard from f- people who really who really love the movie, but it, it it wasn't some it didn't catch fire in the way that even like what the health did, which was like a, a more recent um sort of conspiracy theory angle that, oh well, meat was found to be carcinogenic, but there's all these corporate bad actors that are, you know. Propping up a conspiracy, you know, we sort of went exactly. We we sort of criticized that whole mentality, that conspiracy theory approach to issues in at the fork. Um, and I think it makes it, there's a there in is a sense a smaller audience for that, or at least maybe we didn't do a good enough job marketing it. Um, but uh, it's harder. It's harder to tell the nuanced story. But um, I think in the longer run, it makes the bigger impact. Because the people who can take the time um, to be treated with respect and um, and aren't just propagandized to, and this is not for lack of having strong positions on things, but I think um, you know, I think if you treat your audience like they're smart and um, tackle things with some with an open heart towards your opponents uh you end up in a better place and i think um the the challenge we face really is one of the combination of our psychology and our tribal nature and the business models that kind of um prey on that if you will the 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 sort of if it bleeds it leads business model is not conducive to us sort of uh engaging Socratically and like coming together and grappling with things and, and um, going through that process of seeing things from the other person's point of view and, and seeing maybe that I, I'm not only do I, you know, a lot of times when you engage somebody uh, that's got a very different worldview than you, you, you not only come to learn your own ideas better, but you actually get stronger in your convictions. I have personal friends who are strongly um, uh, on the opposite side of a lot of issues I care about and this is left right and center. I mean it doesn't, you know, across the um across the spectrum. Um I think you can maintain that and you can actually have a richer life when you um t- make that effort. And you know, that's so that that's like the ethos of EO. That's that's our, the ethos that we try to bring to the projects. And um and it's interesting because one of the things is, you know, we are, we're not, um, we're not principally like a YouTube channel in a lot of ways. We, we're, 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 we're a, a production company that, um, tells stories, uh, for both clients and sometimes for, you know, originals, like with, with either, either through investors or like with, with Whole Foods and the Humane Society, in the United States who invested in, um, at the fork or, or a nonprofit partners, like our, se- our second major, um, documentary film The Pursuit that we did with Arthur Brooks and the American Enterprise Institute. Um, you know so we're always grappling with you know our take on issues and our clients or partners take and you know one of the things that we've generally chosen to do is we only take the projects where we are aligned on that. So we turn projects down quite a bit like if somebody comes to us and wants to do something that doesn't align with our values we just say I'm sorry this is not for us. And so, um, you know, I, I don't think there has to be a conflict. You know, uh, Upton Sinclair has this great quote to paraphrase this into the effect of a man will not understand what his paycheck depends on him not understanding. And um, I think about that quote a lot because when you, just, when it's one thing when you are a creative director at Spike and you're making this like little YouTube video on the side and uh, you know, your life doesn't depend on the position you take there. But when you build a business and a livelihood around um, engaging with philosophical ideas and you and you work with a community of like-minded people who you're like, hey, I believe the same thing you believe and Oh, yes, let's do this thing together. You inevitably run into this challenge, this Upton Sinclair challenge of at some point, you know, you face a strong disincentive to change your mind, like your investors and your peers and your community uh, that you're a part of, um, they wouldn't like it very much. <laughs> they wouldn't keep hiring you if you said, you know what, I actually think democratic socialism's got a lot to recommend it. Like that's, you know, like wh- whatever, whatever issue it might be. And, um, and so that's something that's, it's, it's an interesting thing about as a free marketeer it's an interesting thing about the underlying incentives of telling stories commercially, um, telling stories, uh, in a way that's a career. It's when you are just being, um, a hobbyist or an artist and you're doing something else on the side, and then you have your creative work that you do. Um, I think it, uh, it's a different thing, but even if you are, um, I think everyone faces this in different ways. If you're a YouTuber who builds an incredible following around your point of view, you know, it's risky to change your view. It's risky to come out on an issue that you care a lot about that might anger your audience and alienate your audience. And so I think in this era now, this era of um, personality as a platform, I think we face a new kind of challenge for ourselves uh, you know, to the extent anybody cares at all about what I'm doing with this little live stream, you know, you know there's a pressure factor there to want to live up to your, to your values and also give yourself the freedom to change your mind. And um, I, I think that makes storytelling a lot harder. Because in this era, and when it comes to storytelling in a time of crisis where, where fevers are high, and when I look out there and I see that some of this um, cancel culture, and when I see, you know, the, the ugly side of identity politics, and the extent to which our conversations increasingly just sort of devolve into name calling, I just wonder what's the path out of that. You know how do we elevate each other in 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 a time like this where there's a lot of incentives and a lot of rewards for uh, for taking the other path and for um, playing to your base. You know, I think um, we don't do we generally don't do any kind of work for political candidates. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, It's not that the work is corrupt per se. I kind of think it is corrupt because I think politics in general is kind of corrupting, but um, it's not conducive to doing great work. I mean, the the turnaround times, everything about it. I I like, it took me and and Marshall um, like three months to write the Mises versus Marx lyrics. You know, being like, we need to come up with an ad in a week to answer this blah, like is not conducive to the kind of creative... I like to do. If I'm gonna be fast turnaround, I'd rather do something like this, where it's more of a conversation and it's more like, let's get together and talk something out and um, then take the time to craft something that's like a story. And, um, and, uh, and, and, I th- and so we don't do political work for that reason. Um, but, but, but politics is steeped in this, this sort of, uh, this mentality, this tribal mentality and so one of the things I hope to do with, as we move forward in this, um, you know, we're very much in a new era right now. It's like the birth of something new. To um, so just engage you, our audience, our, our subscribers uh, more often, because I think there's a lot we can learn and that I can learn about um, how to do new, interesting work that grapples with big ideas. Um, in a more in, uh, inclusive and sort of flexible uh, way, um, I want to talk a little bit about like what's happening right now with regard to the protests. Uh, I, I, you know, you know, for all of my disdain for identity politics, I am super sensitive about the fact that I am not African American. I can't really speak to the lived experience of people who feel um, who have f- felt what it's like to be black in America. Um, uh, but one of my first sort of eye-opening experiences when it comes to, I guess what you could say is sort of institutional problems in our society is when I got out of school, you know, I was working at MTV and I was kind of a straight laced kid. I didn't do drugs. I didn't, um, I, I didn't like even had drink until like the senior spring break, uh, so, you know, where me and Josh and us all went down to like ocean city in New Jersey and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> got stupid, but so when I got out of school, I was really, and I'm talking college here. I, I was pretty closed, like cloistered. I didn't know anything. So I, so I, I started this job and I'm working in New York city and I'm talking to a friend that talks about how it was easier for him to get cocaine in high school alcohol and this was shocking to me this was like i couldn't believe what i was hearing and um and i said really he's like oh yeah like we we used to have these crazy parties um in greenwich connecticut and i said well like how did you not like what what if the cops showed up he's like oh yeah the cops would show up sometimes and they would give us a slap on the wrist and we'd break up and go wherever um uh I think uh, what I was struck by later was learning about the, the, the other side of the tracks experience, which is um, uh, what it's like to be not in Greenwich, Connecticut, but to be in Newark, New Jersey. And um, what that party would look like if the cops showed up in Newark, New Jersey. And it looks nothing like what happens to my buddy in Greenwich, Connecticut. And for Mike Anderson, who's just joining now, um, uh, you know what exactly is this channel? Seems to cover a lot of things. So, Mike, real quick, um, we—if uh, you're dropping in in the middle here—it's a long and winding journey. But uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Emergent Order, and this YouTube channel is our is our company's channel, and we create content that you know explores big ideas. We've done a lot of work around macroeconomics and. And, and, uh, and the debates about the future of the economy. Um, we've got projects in the works about open borders and the future of parenthood and you know, sort of a wide range of big topics. And so this is my first live stream and sort of a, uh, a video diary, if you will, about some of the thinking that goes into the work we do and, and just t- touching on some of this current events, which is not our main sort of emphasis. We tend to try to look a little bit bigger than current events, but but anyway, I digress. So, I, I got that window into in the war on drugs being sort of systematic in its application and biased in its application. And I know that that's that's only like tangential to the experience, um, that's uh, that's taking place in the protests today. And, um, and all I can say is, you know, I really do stand with the people who. Are peacefully advocating for major change. Um, I wrote a Facebook post, and this does speak to what we're all about and the kind of ideas we like to explore. So, um, you know, when I started to do econ, to get in economics, one of the first fundamental ideas that kind of was eye-opening for, for me, and is in Hayek, and is he's in it's in Mises, and you get pieces of it in the in the two videos, in the three videos, I should say, um, as well as in our movie, uh, the pursuit. Um, on Netflix, yeah, that's right, Um, with Arthur Brooks, is this sense of um, trying to understand the world through the eyes of the individual. And, um, and, And so when you, you know, economists call this methodological individualism. And what it means is you have to grapple with something that's really hard to to grapple with, which is the idea that we don't choose, only individuals choose. So when you talk about things like institutions, and when you talk about institutional forces, or when you talk about America does, or America thinks, or America wants, um, at one level, we all kind of know what this means, like to say like America wants change, or... Um, Uh, you know, China does, does X, but, um, at the basic level of trying to like understand the way the world works, those statements are kind of nonsense. There is no mind that is America that can want or choose or be, um, what, what there is, is Americans and there's 330 plus million Americans that all want different things. And, um, unique things. And so the way you need to understand reality, I think, is to drill all the way down to the individual level and say, well, how do I think about what individuals want and what unlocks individuals' potential and what holds individuals back? And and this is methodological individualism. This is like one of the crowning, one of the foundational concepts underneath, um, you know, the, the economics and philosophy of some of the Work we've done, like the, the philosophy of Hayek and Mises and 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 Thomas Sowell and Milton Friedman and others, is, is to say, start at the individual level, start with one, and try to understand th- what's happening at that individual level, and um, and I think the challenge we face when we when we when we make generalizations about groups, whether it's the police. Or whether it's about different ethnic groups, is um, we really undermine the um, uh, the dignity of the individuals that are part of that process. We are making broad generalizations that you know don't that are quickly falsified. You know that you can quickly po- poke holes in because every generalization, even ones that have a fair amount of truth in them, um, don't hold up to any amount of rigorous scrutiny. And and you know that would be my plea plea for the what comes next when it comes to policies around all, everything we're dealing with right now, whether it's the police or any any which any which way, um, is that I think we just we just have to not overplay our generalizations about other people and not treat groups like monoliths. Um, and and I think that that in a way is sort of the heart of the philosophical debate between a classical liberal and um, folks who, in one way or another, I think, do find inspiration in in the sort of framework of Marx. You know, we did this, this rap video of Mises versus Marx, and um, uh, we tried real hard to represent Marx's arguments fairly, and Marx was this um, polemicist, and I thought Mises was the perfect f- Counter to Marx because Mises was also strident and sort of a polemicist, and they too, and and this methodology issue is at the heart of that debate because Marx is fundamentally analyzing things at the level of class. That classes act, that classes have interests, that it's the workers versus capitalists, bourgeois versus proletariat. Um, you know, black versus white versus male versus female, gay versus straight. And that class mentality eliminates the possibility of treating people as individuals, because your individual individualism and your individual perspective on the world is,, um, well, it's subsumed by the group. And Mises, comes at comes at this and says and he spends the first hundred pages of Human Action talking about this um, epistemolo- um, ep- epistemological approach is to say no that's not the way choices get made that's not that's not the that's not what's going on in society that's not the mechanism here there is no blob class proletariat in some battle with uh, with the bourgeois that's the that, that's that's a story. That's a story that's being told, that is linguist work. That's the work of, 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 of words, not of reality. Um, and I think that's, that's the thing that scares me the most about how do we tell stories in a time of crisis like this? Because um, when our stories uh, sandblast individual dignity and, um, and take those shortcuts, uh, we head straight to Bedlam and we we head down a road that is well-worn in the 20th century of dehumanization. And so, you know, one of the things that I've been struck by and that, um, has started to really inform the kind of storytelling and the kind of projects that, um, that we're trying to pursue as we, you know, evolve our company and try to find ways to make the biggest impact we can with our work. And in a very real sense, we're a mission-driven company. We don't just exist. I mean, I'm I'm sure we could probably make a lot more money going off and working for some big tech company than doing what we do at Emerging Order. But um, fundamentally, I've become much more interested in sort of the underlying psychology of, um, of the decisions we make and the way we come to the the things we think about. You know, one of the, um, there's two books that have had a huge impact on on the way I think about um America and where we are in the world. Um, one is Charles Murray's Coming Apart, which really paints a picture of a diverging society. And it doesn't diverge along the lines that a lot of people, you know, often think, but it's a divergence that I really saw... Um, kind of firsthand as we drove around America for uh at the fork. And that is like, you know, you really do have a, we do have um two different cultures that have emerged. Uh one is um sort of a cognitive elite class, people who don't work in physical, you know, uh, you know, physical manufacturing and physical things and and are live in towns like Inez, Kentucky, um in towns like Austin, Texas or montclair new jersey or new york or dc or los angeles or the bit san francisco bay area um and we watch hbo and we um we have highfalutin sort of uh conversations and um and we've never seen nascar and many of us uh have never shot a gun and um uh drive tiny cars and and all of that, and I'm not trying to be, I mean, I'm summarizing sort of uh, uh, Murray's work here, but I think it's, it's interesting because it maps against our politics in really interesting and ch- challenging ways. And, and yet at the same time, this group is uh, largely married and, and living kind of the, the old school American nuclear family. And then you have um, another America, a, a second America. And it's America that's become increasingly disconnected from the workforce. It's an America that, um, especially for men, where, where the men have sort of lost traction with how to uh, be connected to progress. <laughs> um, you know, we, 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 we touch on this quite a bit in our movie, The Pursuit. We visit Inez, Kentucky, and meet with former coal miners who've um, been displaced by change and um, are struggling with it. And, we, and also folks who've been marginalized in our society writ large and people who've been through homelessness and, and, and people who've uh, uh, grown up in neighborhoods and in, and in parts of society where the, the access, the escape hatches are limited. And um, we've, 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 we've split apart. And if we can't find a way to constructively come back together, it's pretty scary where that heads. And, um, and you know, so our, our, you know, in, in, uh, the pursuit, we spend a fair amount of time just thinking about what does it mean to pursue happiness and what does it mean to have a free enterprise system that lifts people up and that takes seriously the needs of those at the margin and, um, and actually centers our energies around that. You know, um, when I talk about like not analyzing things in terms of class and groups, It's deeply tied to our name. Our name is Emergent Order. And that is that order or harmony or progress can emerge from the bottom up. It can emerge, it emerges through a process that starts at the level of the individual. And I think um, it doesn't work. And it doesn't work as a top down divide and conquer process. That's the path to destruction. The path to progress is Emergent Order. I mean, that's why we called our company what we called it. And, um, and so I think that um, that's one of the big challenges we face is we have some forces that are driving us apart. We have some feedback loops in our society that are, that are doing that too. And, you know, I don't lay all the blame of all of our ills on social media, but social media takes our physical separation and magnifies it into a digital separation and into a kind of a self-fulfilling um niche-ification of our ideas and i i don't think that's going to get us to the better to the better future that i i i'd hope we can get to one where you know um a disagreement isn't met with uh you're a fascist or you're a racist that's uh, not helpful nobody nobody um nobody hears you're a fascist or you're a racist and says no tell me more let me I want to, I want to engage what you just said and take it seriously and see what I can learn from that. Like that is a path to nowhere. That is a, that is not, that is a nihilistic path to despair. Um, And so I think, um, I think that that's one of our biggest challenges in terms of the stories we tell, because I think there are some stories out there that lean into that. And there's stories we can tell about ourselves, about what we want to be, about who, uh, what human nature is that takes us in a different direction. And those are the stories that we tr- we want to tell at Emergent Order and that we try to tell um, that are, you know, about how, it, how to unlock people's potential. And I know we've been going now for, um, you know, a little over an hour. I'm going to talk about one new project in particular. Um, and that's because I think that one of the things... There's a couple forces that are at work right now that um, I think have magnified the strife that we're experiencing. I think the biggest thing that's magnified it is the fact that we are plunged into a depression by COVID-19. You know that was a powder keg that was set up to burst, but um, and uh, you know the police brutality that's been happening uh, was the perfect spark to light that light, light a fire. But I think there's deeper there's, there's deeper forces, psychological forces in the country that we need to really take a, a close look at. So um, one is this culture of fear where we, we've become a scaredy cat country. Um, and, and I have seen that manifest in a very particular way. And, um, and the way I've seen it manifest is through parenting I'm a parent. I have a 15-year-old son and he's um and I've seen the seeds of our of our current challenges in the cultural shifts that have have happened in his peers. And so I I've been working on a new film project about the way uh we the way we raise our kids and and the way that's changed. Because what what's happened is and I, and and I'm still grappling with how widespread this is because it's certainly concentrated amount around um, middle and upper class for sure. I don't know how much I'm still grappling with to what extent these changes have um, um, manifested in, in working class families. And I think there's other challenges if you're you know really at the margin and you're the working poor. You're you know really at, at, at the edge of poverty. And that is, um, you know, and I've, I've interviewed several podcast, um, podcast guests about this, uh, Lenore Scanese and Peter Gray and, and Greg Lukianoff. And so about a year ago, I read um, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. And in that book, they start with the question of what, why has college campus um, become this hotbed of protest specifically around uh, f- um, you know the, cr- the the sort of shouting down of dissent why has why has what has traditionally been um, a a space a safe space if you will for freedom of expression and for alternative voices you know the sort of 60s Berkeley mentality why has that flipped 180 degrees and now young people um, are actively seeking, what I've, what I've heard uh, folks call um, epistemic closure. They don't that, you know, whether it's uh, Jordan Peterson or, or, or Charles Murray, um, you know, uh, um, or other thinkers who sort of push on different, um, different lines of thought that are challenging to, the, to folks. Why, why has that suddenly become t- not just challenging, but, but actually like a f- treated like a physical threat and, you um, and, and and what's underneath that? Because some something has shifted, and it shifted relatively recently. And and the book makes a very compelling case, which I've been spent the past year d- diving much deeper into, about about the way um, gen, you know younger generations now have grown up. And so, you know, I'm 42. I'm gen, I'm thoroughly Gen X. And so, when I was a kid, my childhood I think looked like most American childhood for. The, childhoods for the past like fifty, sixty years. Like I got home from school and I went outside. And I was basically um free to do whatever the hell I want <laughs> with very little structure or constraint. And you know, and so was all the other kids in the neighborhood. And you know, I have a I have an Italian mother which is just like a Jewish mother. So a super worrier, but she didn't worry that we were going to be kidnapped. She didn't um uh, she didn't like stand by the door looking outside or, or we there was no concept of having a play date. Um, you just went out and ran around like crazy animals and you figured things out. And I, you, t- we all, for those of us that grew up that way, we take for granted what that was doing. But what, um, Peter Gray, this incredible psych psychologist, um, writes about in detail in his book, free to learn. And you can hear about it more in our podcast is that, um, that freedom, that free play is how we actually learn. It's how we learn to be functional people. And that it's, it's where we get early, safe bumps and bruises that not just toughen our skin, but teach us how to interact with others. It's where you know you invent a game and you have to build consensus. To have the little made-up game take place, and if it's too draconian, the other kids aren't gonna, kids are not gonna want to play it. But if the rules don't work, and or if you're, um, you know, they won't want to play. Like it's very hard to invent a game and have a, and have a bunch of kids that can run around and do something else, like stick in it and play. That's one lesson. Um, You know, you're kicking, you're beating each other up. (laughs) I mean, I I say this as a boy, but I mean, boys and girls together. You're having little spats and little scuffles, and you're surviving them, and you're learning that you can survive adversity. And this can sound like a privileged thing. And I think in many cases, I think it is a privileged thing to say that we need to learn how to survive adversity. It sounds totally tone deaf in a world where there are poor people. dying in the streets unjustly and say like i think there's more than enough adversity going around and i and, and in a very real sense that's unquestionably true guilty is charged to sit, to to draw attention to that but there's also it's also true that we have lots of different problems happening simultaneously in in our society and they all matter and i think this one matters a lot because what what um what i've sort of come to to see and what I'm exploring in this new film is the ways in which our fear as parents has translated into um, a, a real sense of, of fragility as a, of, in young adults. There's increasing levels of suicide and depression, of anxiety and despair um, among my son's peers. And uh, all around the country, and and in, and in the broader, mostly English-speaking West, and um, and there's and that has combined in a way that I think is quite toxic with a culture that is, I think, well-intended, but that is um, a different kind of powder keg, and that is the culture of of, of victimology, the sense in which being a victim is not merely a, a something to be, uh, concerned about something to have to confront when you are a victim, but that it's a badge of honor. And that it's actually, it's actually a, a mentality you should lean into and that you should integrate into your identity. And I know a lot of, I know a lot of people who have been victimized and in, in many different ways, physically, sexually, um, uh, economically, and, um, and every strong person I know who's overcome these adversities has said that embracing being a victim is the path to hell. And you see that this is an insight that is most people really understand in other contexts. So if you are a parent of a child with a disability, um, you know, and the social workers that focus on this know that the number one thing you should be setting out to do is help encourage independence, not victimhood, not dependence. Um, that, that, is the, that is a muscle that you have to flex and learn from, and, and that it's essential to, uh, to, um, to progress. And uh, this is the same is true for people who struggle with um, drugs and alcohol, who also I have many people close to me who have suffered through that. And, and that, that sense of overcoming your identity as an, as an alcoholic or, or, what, or whatever, to a person who has that, you are a person first, you are an individual first. You are not an alcoholic, you are a person who struggles with alcohol dependency. Um, you're not an, a convict. You are a person who has been incarcerated, that your, you know, your identity isn't wrapped up in any of these things um, that the, this is, this is an essential. Uh, I think it's an essential ingredient to human progress. And it's an essential part of the psychological um, grappling that I'm and increasingly doing with our projects and with, just trying to think about how to make the world a better place and how to communicate that and how to tell stories about it. And the interesting thing is like, I got into this stuff around economics and economics does a terrible job of confronting these challenges of identity and of um, personal motivation. Uh, it treats them like kind of like an, like a, like a, like a, an assumption, like, a, like a, there's a utility function and, and why, why you're motivated doesn't really matter. In fact, um, motivations are sort of, Trying to understand motivations are like the anti- in some ways the antithesis of of, um, of economic logic because it, it it's saying that intentions matter you know and the road to hell is paved with good intentions and in some in in many domains your intentions don't really matter your outcomes do but when it comes to storytelling and when it comes to trying to think about like the human condition our intentions matter a lot you know we um we don't judge characters by the outcome. In a story. We actually we judge them by their by their intentions, by their motivation. You know, a recent example I gave, and I realize this sounds like I'm jumping all the hell over the place, but um, the movie John Wick is like the perfect example of this to me, because John Wick is a um, is a murderer, he's a paid assassin, he's a bad guy. And in all three movies, he goes about Killing other murderous assassins, but we root for John Wick as the hero and the other people as the villains. Why? Like, why do we? Why do we? Why do we vote for John Wick as the hero? Like, if you're if you're still if you're still paying attention, like, I pop a comment, and why do you think John Wick is uh, is a hero? Like, why is he, why do we interpret him as a hero? I mean, I, I, I'll say what I think. And that is that it's, it's all about his motivation. It's all about, he is the hero because um, he loved his dog and he loved his girl. And so uh, exactly, yeah, Cyclone's got it. Um, and also organically squared, is it because he wants to quit? I mean, I think that's, the, the, these are all things um <laughs> i think i thought he was ba- he, it was because he was a lunatic well he is clearly a lunatic as well but you know i think the distinction from a storytelling perspective and from a how do we interpret him as a character in a story is that he, he appears to be w- motivated well his motivations matter his intentions matter so he he decided to leave the, the guild or, or whatever it was called behind and stopped doing contract killing. And he found a girl and found a dog. And, and so he had sort of turned the corner and when his house is burned down and his dog is killed and he goes on a murderous rampage to avenge it, which is probably a little over the top as far as a uh, proportionality, we root for it because, well, these are all bad guys and he's the reformed good guy. But, but, there is no difference between John Wick and the people he's killing other than other than what we understand to be his motivation. And I think this for, for classical liberals like myself, for people who look at economics and they look at sort of public policy and they look at these debates around these big subjects, um, we cut across in this way and, and get confused about how to think about storytelling because um, at one level, you know, and you could say identity politics plays into this, that like your motivations are what matters. your identity, like who you are matters. Are you a good messenger or not? Are you um, well intended? are you um, or not? And if I don't think you're well intended, I don't have to listen to anything you say. That's not an intellectually rigorous position to take. That's not a that's not good economics, It's not good rhetoric. But we have to contend with the fact that it's reality. We have to contend with the fact that as storytellers, Um, this is the way stories work. We judge the good guys and the bad guys by their intentions. Um, and, uh, and it's real challenging to try to think about how do you tell good stories about issues that like, that are difficult issues, like, um, the protests we're going through or our politics or our economic, the future of our economic system and, and bring those down to the level of, um an individual story, which in a way is very Mises, you know, human action, like the individual is making choices through, in this, through the world and in the face of uncertainty. And so that's the perfect, uh, uh, in a lot of ways Mises and his philosophy and this sort of methodology is very story centric because you want to understand individuals. You don't have blobs of groups of masses as the protagonist in a movie. That that doesn't work. You need an individual that you can grapple with and understand. Um, at the same time, you can really fall prey to false narratives when you break things down to the individual. When it just becomes anecdotal, it, it, it and, and this is the one of the biggest things I'm grappling with as a storyteller right now is how can I do a good job of tackling the subjects I care about. In the case of my my next project, my project I'm working on now. You know the role, our role as parents, and our role as, in a, as a society of um, creating a culture of fear and victimhood that has damaged our kids and set them up to be fragile, and therefore set them up to want things out of the out of their lives that um, the world isn't prepared to give them because the world doesn't care about you because the world can't care. The world's not a being. The world is just the world. And so you have to go out there and you have to create your own care. You have to, you, you care as an individual, you know, the world doesn't owe any of us anything. Um, you know, how do you grapple with that story and tell it at the individual level? And how do you find heroes for those kind of stories? And how do you guard yourself against, um, confirmation bias and just picking the anecdote that suits the story you want to tell and leaving the other stories off to the wayside. You know, one of the thinkers that's been a huge impact on me and he speaks to this issue of what's happening with our kids and, you know, uh, is Nassim Taleb and Nassim, um, his, one of his most recent books is called, um, anti-fragile and, uh, it's about what it means to be robust uh, to be, to be strong. Like what is the process that, um, promotes, you could say promotes just human well-being. Um, he, he, you know, he, the first book I read of Tanasim Taleb's was the black swan. And, um, he, in it, he points to a lot of things that are important for us to understand about ourselves and about our nature and, and the way that we sort of, um, misperceive probability and the pro- and the, and the likelihood of big risks and um and 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 that we can have these black swan moments that change everything you know this covid-19 pandemic is maybe a black swan moment this um uh these protests and this movement that has gained momentum might be another black swan moment but um you know one of the, one of the recurring themes through his writing is the sense in which what we should want out of, our, out of ourselves, out of our institutions, which is this weird word, institution, but our, our organizations, the rules of our society, the rules of the organizations that matter in our society is um, anti-fragility. So what is anti-fragility? Well, the way he puts it is, to paraphrase, that you could say that something's fragile, like a, um, a porcelain cup you know, if you drop it on the ground, it will shatter. Now, you can say something's robust, like this, um, this plastic bottle. If I drop this, it's not going to shatter. It's just going to bounce. So it's, it's robust. But anti-fragile is, is, is a different thing. Um, anti-fragile is not simply that I can resist, I can survive pressure and adversity, like dropping the bottle on the ground versus dropping the porcelain cup. Anti-fragility is that I actually get stronger through my through the the confrontations with adversity. And I mean, we have a perfect example of the anti, anti-fragility that we're grappling with right now. Our immune systems are perhaps exhibit A in the examples of anti fragile systems. How do we come to fight off a new virus? Through exposure. That's how it works. uh, um, a vaccine is actually a small uh, sort of attenuated piece of the very thing that is trying to kill you to teach your immune system how to become stronger. Uh, With kids, we see this with the rise of peanut allergies. Um, They've done repeated studies of this. And um, when you, uh, when you have a peanut allergy, or when you are marked as having a peanut allergy, and and some people, it is a fatal thing, so you can't just start giving them peanuts. But um, the rise in peanut allergies correlates with the reduction of exposure to peanuts. So now you go to school, and there's no peanut butter allowed, which sucks, because peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are one of the greatest things ever as a kid. But, um, But this is the problem that we're facing, is that you know, we, we are raising a generation that doesn't get exposed to the things that will make them stronger. That is a generalization. There are some kids getting exposed to things that no kid should get exposed to. And, but even in those cases, sometimes if you talk to the survivors of the worst adversities we could imagine, yes, they can have, they can be screwed up in all kinds of ways, but they also might tell you that it helped them overcome the challenges that they faced in life. Um, the, one, of the way, one of the therapies for peanut allergies is actually slow but increasing exposure to peanuts. One of the ex- ways that we can um, overcome the fragility of our psyches now and our ideolo- ideological boxes and our um, victimologies and our, uh, um, and the, the identity politics that has gone too far on all sides is exposure therapy. And I think that's the best part of what's happening in these, you know, in this movement that's taking shape. I think to the extent that it, people can be exposed to dialogues and new ideas, um, that is making us anti-fragile and in a, in a positive way. That's promoting progress. Um, I think that's like that's what competition does in markets. That's why markets work. It's not simply that the that the comp you know that the competition creates um, incentives for invention. It's that um, that give and take and that tumultuous, painful process of losing over and over again makes you stronger. It is it is the creation of an anti a more anti fragile um, society, one person, one company, one organization at a time, and um, I think we've lost a lot of that in the United States. And I think that this is one this is the thing. If 10 years ago, my concern, the concern that animated emergent order as a company was um, this debate of Keynes versus Hayek and the macroeconomics. um, And and I'm still every bit as interested in that subject as I've ever been. I think that this challenge of fragility versus anti-fragility and how will we, expose ourselves to the experiences that will make us stronger and better people is, is the issue that's animating the next, the next period for us as a company. And for me, as a, as a filmmaker and as a someone who cares about philosophy and, um, and, and, and that's what this live stream and in all it's meandering, meandering was all about is just sort of sharing that and talking a little bit about it. And, um, and sort of exposing myself to the world, to to get feedback on these ideas, because that's the exposure I want. I want to hear from folks about um, how they're thinking the world will get better, because it's pretty depressing out there. And um, I'm a rational optimist. I, I you know one of my favorite books is Matt Ridley's um, Rational Optimism. And we have we're, we're pretty hardwired for negativity. You know, we have these two things that are these, in a way there may be one thing. Um, it's fear. You know, fear is the force that is, it's, it's our survival instinct, right? We, um, uh, we're, we're afraid of things that might kill us. <laughs> you know, we were animals in caves and we were afraid of the dark because we couldn't see if there were snakes in the holes that we might walk through or bears lurking, sleeping until until we wake them. And uh, we aren't that different as a biological entity. And yet we live in a world now where um, we see those dangers through a screen from a thousand miles away. And our brain, I think, doesn't understand whether or not we're, that is a threat to us or not. And so we are constantly having our fear um, put in our face. 24 hour news, it's its business model. If it bleeds, it leads. And um, and so, how do we create a new, um, a new robustness, a new anti fragility in an era of constant, incessant fear mongering? I, I don't really know. I don't know the answer, but I know that uh, I know that we, if we just keep leaning into fear and demonization. I don't think the country survives in the way that I would hope for it to. And I say this as a parent more than anything else. And, um, I don't think our relationships survive. Um, and, and so that's the stuff that, um, we're trying to grapple with. And, it, you know, it doesn't sound like the stuff of a company, <laughs> um, uh, but we're a weird company and, um, and, I you know I think that that's uh, that's where the future lies for us one way or another. We have to grapple with these things. Um, I left uh, I left TV behind because I thought there was an opportunity to apply the sort of creative skills of promoting TV shows to something that mattered more. And it's not that TV shows don't matter, um, but they don't matter quite as much as this this stuff. Um, before we uh, sign off, I'm gonna take a look and see if there's any comments um, or anything that anybody would like me to touch on here since we do have this interactive platform function. Um, any, anybody, anybody got something, something for me to opine on before we uh, sign off for the day? I see one person said have you grappled with um Eric Weinstein's idea of embedded growth obligation. Um you know, I was just exposed to this idea in a um in a Joe Rogan podcast uh, podcast that I watched recently with him. So I I don't know enough about I mean Eric is a pretty mind-exploding smart guy. So maybe we can see if he'll come on our podcast to, to talk about it some more. I do think that, uh, again, as a free marketeer, it's really easy to just say, here's what we need to do. We need to have a minimal government that just protects people's individual dignity and property. And when I say individual dignity, I mean uh, the equality under the law. So um, uh, uh, treat everybody equally. And um, protect them and protect their ability to hold honestly acquired property for themselves. And, and uh, the rest will work itself out. I mean, look at history, look at, look at the way the West was built. Um, uh, You know, obviously there's plenty of people say, no, the West is built on a slaveocracy and, and a lot of other terrible, horrible things. I would say that's all of human history. Um, uh, Not, unique to the West and the West actually escaped that by things like the Magna Carta and the elevation of individual rights above petty tribalism. But um, I I don't think that argument holds a lot of sway outside of a small systems thinking group. And that's a real challenge. I think think anybody that calls himself a classical liberal or a libertarian has to take, that challenge seriously. If, if your ideas aren't persuasive, um, uh, how are they going to get out there into the world? How are they going to manifest in reality? And so, uh, you know, maybe this is um, not a real answer to the question of this embedded growth obligation or the Eric um, question, but I do think he, I do think what I remember of him, what he was trying to grapple with was like, how do we have a how do we have a, a capitalism that doesn't kill itself and, and the way it might be killing itself now to the extent see, I'm even using that. Th- those terms don't even make any sense. Cause there isn't, capitalism is not a thing that can do things. But, so the methodological individualist in me is sort of scoffing at my own words here, but um, there's something in the cycle of progress that tends to be a little self defeating. Um, you know, Schumpeter talked about this. Minsky talks about it. You know, it might just be, in some respects, multi generational sort of forgetting that you can't escape. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I think, uh, but I, I think ideas still matter. I mean, that's why I'm trying to do these projects and, you know, get out there in different ways um let's see i mean i think uh i think the one i guess that here's the thing i'll end with um one of the other projects that i'm working on is uh taking my good friend brian Kaplan's book open borders and turning it into some kind of film it's a graphic novel it's on amazon i strongly recommend it it's um it's a vociferous advocacy for effectively the kind of the kind of open borders that built the United States up until roughly 1924. And America is an incredible experiment. And, um, one of the things that is the most exciting and unique thing about being an American from my perspective is we've managed to hold together as a pluralistic nation of immigrants. And um, that is very deep to me. It is one of, I think, the two magical inventions of America. I think the first invention of America that was special was, and I think it was somewhat accidental, uh, federalism, this sort of competitive collection of states that can try things and you can vote with your feet while still being American. I can say... New Jersey is um, an oppressive (laughs) environment on a lot of fronts. So I'm going to pick up and move to Texas and I'm still an American. And that's a kind of diversity that makes us stronger as a, as a nation. And I think that uh, our diversity and the plurality of voices and cultures, there is no one American culture. There is no one um, American ethos um, other than, you know, my, my friend and film collaborator Arthur Brooks says we're a nation of ambitious riffraff. You know, my, uh, my family goes back to barely literate Southern Italian immigrants who came over as teenagers with nothing and um, built a family out of that and, uh, and were um, subjected to all kinds of trouble along the way. And obviously not everyone in America was brought here voluntarily. Uh, and we grapple with we grapple with the echoes of that. I definitely believe we do to this day. But I think what made America special and why I really chafe at um, narratives and stories that attempt to say that America sort of stands on fundamentally broken foundation is that I don't think there is any other society that has sought to incorporate um, so many different people and done so, so successfully. And I find it strange where when I see longing for um, the kinds of societies that uh, are ethnically, culturally homogenous, whether it's wanting to be more like Sweden and Denmark or England or something. I just, I think like, why, I, I I just fundamentally disagree with that. I think that, um, you know, I, I disagree with the idea that we're a uniquely bigoted society, having traveled the world. I think bigotry is a universal, disgusting human quality. And that like so many things I've talked about today, bigotry is subject to anti-fragility. And the more you expose yourself to other people, um, the more anti, the more, um, not merely tolerant, but the more exciting and the more accepting you are of of diversity. And we see that in a lot of ways. We see it in the fact that um, I'm here in Texas and um, Texas by and large isn't very pro-immigration state, even as it is a red state. And that, you know, whether it was George W. Bush or, or Rick Perry, a, 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 you know, they're Republican um, candidates who were very pro-immigration. And, you know, and that is, that is the anti-fragility of exposure. When you are exposed to other people with different experiences, different points of view, and whether or not they have different skin is part of the process, but is not the most important part. Um, it makes you better. And I think that that is the America that I care about. And so um, I want more of that America. I, I don't want us to splinter and f- collapse and, and, and crack up and come apart. I want us to um, find a way to let order emerge with diversity and with um, dignity and love. And so I think I'll sign off on that. I think um, for those of you that stuck through this, for so long, uh, and got any value out of it. I thank you. I, you know, definitely if you're, if you're li- watching and listening and haven't subscribed to the podcast, do that. We are going to keep doing, uh, this kind of stuff and having these conversations here on the YouTube channel and, um, and, uh, we're going to keep sharing what we're working on because it, it, it's a new world in media land. And, and I think it's exciting to, um, you know, share what what's going on before it's before it's a finished product it's It's a new thing for me to do, but I think it's exciting, and I think it might open up new opportunities to and new collaborations to be discovered so um i uh, I thank you for tuning in and um look forward to the next one. Thanks a lot thanks for listening to the Emergent Order podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. If you're interested in being a guest, shoot us an email at podcast at emergentorder.com. Our producer is Jesse Bennett. Thanks again and speak to you next time.